and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What would you say if Jesus were to say this to you? You know the way to where I'm going. Would you respond as Thomas did, first telling him that they, or at least he, didn't know where he was going? So how in the world would they, or could they, know the way to where it was that he was heading? That place that he has already told both the Pharisees and his disciples that they couldn't come to that place. But he did, however, tell the Pharisees that because of where he was going, because of that, that they would die in their sins. But he didn't tell this to his disciples. He told Peter, though, at the end of the last chapter, chapter 13, that he would follow Jesus to where he was going. And then in verse 2 of this chapter, he told them all that he was going to prepare a place for them with the Father. And then in verse 3, he told them that since he was going, that he would come back for them and take them to where he is going. And in verse 6, Jesus tells Thomas, these men and us, how? The means to where he is going. He uses once again that divine name of God to reveal to them who he is. I am the way. But not only the way, he expounds on what that means in being the way, in saying that he is the truth. And then finally, to further explain what this I am God is, what that means in saying that he is the way and the truth, he ties it all up, that full meaning of what those things are, in saying that he is the life. Saints, listen. Here, here is the eternal payment for your eternal sin against the eternal God that has separated you eternally from him. Here is found the peace that you long for, that you can never attain to on your own. Here is the key to unlock the shackles that are enslaving you to the sin that so easily besets you. Here is the means to finding meaning, hope, and joy in this life. It's the same reason that we should not let our hearts be troubled. That was the command by Jesus to these men in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. And then he gave them the reason why they must not let their hearts be troubled. Because they believe in God. Believe also in me. I want to highlight the truth found in this verse to Thomas. That answer to Thomas. When Jesus, when Jesus responded to him. He, Jesus, tells these men and us that he is the way, him, the great I am, who loves you and has loved you to the end. Let that sink in. He loves you. We, the redeemed, all agree that this is true. He loved us and demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners, he died for us, right? We'd agree with that, right? 
This is why we're called saints. While, why we are heirs with Christ. Why we have peace with God. But we need to understand that the love of Christ did not just get us here. Just make us saints. Just redeem us. His love for us is a love that transcends all time. He has made a way, a place for us. And he tells us at the end of verse 6 where he is going, where he will return from, and then the why of our peace, our hope, our love, our joy. And that is the Father. He is the only access to the Father. Him exclusively. And this truth is controversial. It may very soon be deemed hate speech within this country because it is so controversial and true. And the world hates God. And it hates the fact that God gave them only one way to him. Which, if you think about it, it seems pretty stupid. Because if he had made many ways to himself, then it would be really easy to get um, hung up on a false way, to get confused that you're on the path of righteousness. But since he made only one path, that path is exclusive. And the world hates him for it. And they also hate that all those other paths will actually get you to heaven. Yeah, you heard me right. All paths do lead to heaven. Well, since this is true, David, then what's the big deal about the exclusivity thing that Jesus was telling these men? Well, herein is found one of the problems of not understanding, not really knowing the way. We think that heaven is the goal of our life. Many so-called evangelicals are striving to get to heaven, to the day that all their struggles will finally end, to the day that they no longer have to worry, no longer have stress, to the day when they get to hang out in their Barker Lounger lounge chair with an iced tea sitting next to them, watching reruns of game shows, and wondering to themselves, what am I going to do today? A round of golf? Or maybe just hang out at the pool. This, or something like this, is the thing that they are striving for in their Christianity. But this is not heaven. And heaven is not, should not be our goal. As proof of this truth, even the unregenerate have this same goal in mind. How many of you have been told that my loved one who has died, is in heaven by an unregenerate person. And one day I will see them there myself. Their idea of heaven is much the same as many that claim to be saved, but live only to get to heaven. A heaven that is not filled with the glory of God, that is not the dwelling place of the Most High, but when you understand 
the heaven that all false religions will get you to, again, will get you to, a heaven that those that hate God will enter, and even the heaven that many who claim to be saved but live only to get to heaven, when you understand what that heaven is like, when you understand that it is really what you're not expecting and what they're not expecting either, we're told what that heaven, the reality of that heaven is in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. It begins, Then I saw a great white throne, and, and, on, and on him who sat on it. Let me stop there. This is heaven. This is in heaven. And the first thing that we're told in heaven is there one who is, seating on, who is seated, on, seated on a throne. And he's seated there for a specific purpose. A throne is a place that the one who is sovereign sits. And it's a place of rule, of justice, of condemnation. And the one who was seated on this throne, a throne that is described as great and white, that one is so majestic that this verse goes on to describe him in this way. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And the heathen thinks that they will stand before this one and shake their fist at him. Thinks that they will have their day in court. Thinks that, oh man, I've got something to say to that man upstairs. This one is so holy, so majestic, that even the very matter that he created to hold his creation with him, because it had been tainted by sin, it flees. From his holiness. And you think that you're going to stand. You silly man. And then beginning in verse 12. We're told I saw the dead. Great and small. Standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Then another book was opened. Which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. According to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Here are all those that are choosing those other ways. Those Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Muslims, the Jews, the atheists, the agnostics, the Satanists, and even those who call themselves spiritual who don't know the way that is this I am God. And then we're told how this all ends, this all roads lead to heaven thing in verses 14 through 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Hear why having getting to heaven as your goal is so damning. Because the very next thing that we're told happens on that day when all the roads lead to heaven, when all those people are judged alongside of those that are of the Lamb of God, hear what the one that is seated on that throne does with the place that all those people were trying and striving to get to. That's told us in chapter 21 of, of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, 
and the sea was no more. Have you ever wondered why there has to be a new heaven and a new earth? Why the first heaven and earth passes away? It's because they were polluted by having those that were longing for heaven in them. They were fouled by sin. I've said that the world hates the exclusive claim by Christ because he is the way to the Father. But I have to ask you, do you hate it as well? Now, why in the world would I ask such a question to people who've committed to this church, to people who've submitted to baptism and church membership? But I have to ask you, have you really, truly submitted? Do you, in your heart of hearts, hate that God requires you to submit? That to be of him, in him, you must die to your desires, your freedom to be you that you are required, required to live as he directs you. Is this why you are so unable to not let your heart be troubled? Is this why we have heartburn over God destroying our little golden calves? Saints, there's one reason why you cannot allow heaven to be your goal. And that reason is I am. You must make Christ, your goal. Hear the verses that follow that creation of the new heaven and earth. I saw a new holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That sounds a lot like that place that Jesus told these men about in verse 2 of chapter 14. The house of his fathers that has many rooms. But this dwelling, this house, this place cannot be our goal either. Because that place is just a place. It has nothing, is nothing outside of the one that it is the dwelling place of who is then revealed to us, beginning in verse 4 of Revelation. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Now can you see why heaven cannot be our goal? It has to be the one that makes heaven heaven. The one that tells us of the eternal separation that has taken place because of him. He goes on. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
saints. Stop and think about this separation. That distinction that was just made by the one sitting on the throne in heaven. Where do you fit? Which group describes you? When we're honest with ourselves, and we should be honest with ourselves because we're not fooling God. That second group, that describes us. Even now. So am I saying that there's no hope from us if we don't buck up, buckle down, and get this life in Christ thing right? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying, what I'm desiring you to see from this list, from that separation, is that our salvation is from God, from beginning to end. It is He who sought us. We weren't looking for Him. It is He who regenerated our hearts, who loves us. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, and we hated God. It is he who revealed the reality of his majesty and holiness to us, and the reality of our sin as well. And it is he who atoned for those sins, and it is he who will hold us fast. It is all about him, about this I am that is the way, the truth, and the life. And this is why we need to get this right. Why we need to know the way. Because he is the way. And not just to salvation. Not just to heaven. But he is the way to righteousness. To joy. To holiness. To the Father. But as we see from our verses today, we're not the only ones that are confused about this way. Verses 5 through 10. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him. And you have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Now these men may not have been the sharpest tools in the tool shed, the brightest, the brightest crayons in that Crayola box. Because the question that Thomas asked, we can excuse that one. After all, it's pretty easy to get confused about the things that Jesus said, mainly because we, like they, were thinking in this realm and not the real one. But by the answer of Jesus, we can see that he thought, he figured that these men and all that are redeemed by him would know that he and the Father are one, that seeing him is seeing the Father. A few years ago, I used to sit in a third grade class in a classical Christian school and answer theological and biblical questions. One question that came up very often by those third graders was centered on the truth of these verses. They asked me, when we get to heaven, will we see God? 
And my answer to them was always the same that Jesus gave here in these verses. Yes, when we get to heaven, we will see God. But we will never see the Father, and we will never see the Spirit. We will see the earthly manifestation of God in the Son, the one that is the one with the Father. And that will be, that is enough. Once again, can you not see why we need to know this way? Because he is the all that we will ever see of God. And God is not holding out on us. He's not jipping us by us only seeing Jesus. So who is this I am? What is he like? Well, John told us concerning this I am. In John 1.5, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. 2 Samuel 22 tells us, For who is God besides Yahweh? And who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer. He enables me to stand on the heights. Psalm 54 tells us of God. Surely God is my helper. The Lord is the one who sustains me. Psalm 62 tells us of God. My salvation and my hope, my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him. For God is our refuge. Silah. Exodus 15 tells us of God. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? In 1 Timothy, we're told, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, to the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And in verse 6, Jesus uses the divine name of God as his own. He says of himself, I am. We gloss over this, thinking not very much of it. We don't see it as of importance. But for these men, and even today for any Orthodox Jew, this is blasphemous. No one spoke the name of God. And no one ever used it as their own. As a matter of fact, today, Orthodox Jews will not write, even write the name God. When they write that, they write G-D. They won't even write that name. But Jesus used that name as his name. He's the only one that has ever done that. And he did this because it is his name. This is why he, Jesus, is so incredulous with Philip when he asked him, show us the Father and that'll be enough. Then all the questions will be answered. That would be proof positive, that seal of approval that I need. And in verse 7, Jesus begins a series of cause and effect statements. You can identify these cause and effect statements because they begin with if and then follow with then. If you had known me, you would know my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Here again is the importance of knowing the way that is Jesus. Because if you do not, then you will not know the father. If you don't know Jesus, this I am, who is the way, 
then you will not know the Father. And it is the love of the Father for the Son is so great that it is only through the Son that any can know the Father. We need to stop once again and think about this. Wonder why that would be. Why can no one know the Father except through the Son? Why is it that we must confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord to be saved? Why can't we just go and stand in the presence of God? The reason for this is revealed to us in those verses from Revelation 20. Because we humans are all the ones whose portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. All and any that approach the Father outside of the atonement of the Son will be cast out because of the separation that they have caused by their sin. And it's done for one reason only, because God is holy, 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 which means that he is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice and truth. And nothing happens except through him and by his will. That was the answer to the second question, by the way. And we were created in his image. Adam was holy, righteous, pure. He walked in the cool of the evening with God. He enjoyed close, intimate fellowship with God. And then he sinned, and that all ended. In that moment, because of his sin, he no longer could walk in the cool of the morning with God. He could no longer enjoy sweet fellowship with God. He had killed himself, separated himself, polluted himself. He was no longer the family of God. But remember, Adam was created in the image of God, which means that he, like God, is eternal. But he's an eternal created being. He was not from the beginning, but from the moment that he was created, from that moment forward, he will live eternally. And this is the same for every person who was ever conceived from that moment forward. We will all die unless Christ comes back. But our souls, which is the essence of who we really are, they will not. And every person that stands before God on that day, the day of the great white throne judgment, will have one of two books opened. And they will either have the book of judgment opened, the one that chronicles every sin that they've ever done against this holy, righteous God, every time, every instance of treasonous rebellion against truth. And for this sin, they will be judged and they will be found wanting. And they will be cast into the lake of fire in eternal hell where the worm never dies and the fire never ends. Hell is not what so many people want you to believe. It's not real. It's just the end. Or they will have the Lamb's Book of Life opened. Not because of any work that they have done here on their time on earth, but because of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world for the work that he has accomplished. 
in his death, burial, and resurrection. And when you stand before God, he will either see you for who you really are, a treasonous rebel, or Jesus, your Savior, will step between you and the Father, and the Father will see you through his beloved, righteous, holy, just, and loving Son, and you will enter into his rest, enter into the new heaven and earth, enter into eternal salvation and fellowship with your Father because of the Son. Can't you see? Don't you grasp the importance of knowing the one that is the way? And in verse 11 of our text today, that one, the the way to the Father, he commands, he compels those that are his to know him. He tells them, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the account of the works themselves. Here again is that imperative. Believe. Don't think. Don't surmise. Don't hold these truths to be self-evident. You must believe. And you must believe this is is true. Just like you believe that you are sitting down right now. Just like you believe that that chair that you're sitting on is solid. Like you believe today is Sunday. This is how you have to believe. And then the one that we must believe in. He transitions from the eternal to the temporal, which although is in this realm is still part of the eternal. But he transitions from what belief in him achieves to what belief in him produces. Verses 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He begins verse 12 with that divine imperative. Truly, truly. As you know, this is the same imperative that the prophets of old would begin a word with God with. Thus saith the Lord. This is an absolute. It should Make our, it should prick our ears, demand our attention, cause us to sit up and take notes because God is telling us something that we need to hear. We need to understand and we need to obey. And the thing that he, God, tells these men and us, it's simply and utterly ridiculous. We're going to do the works that he does and greater works What in the world does he mean here? Well, there are many, if not the majority within Western evangelicals that will tell you that this means that we're going to raise the dead, that we're going to heal the sick, that we're going to produce something out of nothing, that since we are now in Christ, and because we are now in Christ, and just because he told us now that we are, because he's leaving, that we're going to do works, the same works and even greater works, There's no controversy over this. And in fact, if you are not doing these works, it's only for one reason, because you lack faith. Would you be surprised if I told you that the Barna Group, a Christian polling firm that found in 2012 that evangelicals accepted the attitudes and beliefs of the Pharisees more than they did 
of Christ? The reason for both of these tragedies is that this is the teaching from the pulpit in so many so-called churches. But we shouldn't be surprised, though, that there are false teachers out there. And there are false teachers out there. We've been warned by the apostles about them. Apostles who, even in their day, saw false teachers rise up among them, such as in 2 Peter, when he said, but false prophets will also arose among the people. This is the past in the Old Testament. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, they will be, the truth will be blasphemed, and their greed they will exploit you with their false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And Paul warned his flock similarly in 2 Timothy. He said, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Sounds like the world, huh? But then he goes on, having the appearance of godliness. He's talking about so-called Christians here, but, by, but denying his power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the, at the knowledge of truth. Well, you may be thinking to yourself, well, that doesn't seem right or fair that God would allow false teachers to come in and lead poor, innocent Christians astray. I mean, how are they or we, how are we supposed to know what is right or not? I mean, the one, that guy in that pulpit, he's the one that's got the degrees. He's the one that's got the titles. So I'm just going to sit here and listen to them. And if it makes me feel good about myself, that's got to be the truth then. But the only problem with this kind of thinking is that if you have been redeemed, then the mind of Christ is yours. That's 1 Corinthians 2.16. Then you have his spirit indwelling in you, 1 John 4.13. And if this is true, then Colossians 2.8 applies to you, which says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And if you have the mind of Christ, if his spirit is indwelling in you, then not only does Colossians 2.16 apply to you, but so does 2 Timothy 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in the mist. As for you, always be sober. Sober-minded, that is, 
enduring suffering, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. We cannot allow ourselves to be those people who don't know, who don't care, who hear or read verses like from the ones from today and accept whatever makes our flesh feel good as the truth. Again, you may be sitting there countering, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a scholar. I don't have time to learn Greek, to really try to figure out what all this means. And that 2 Timothy verse, David, well, that doesn't apply to me since Paul was writing to a pastor and I'm not a pastor. Well, you may not be an elder, but you are part of the royal priesthood if you've been saved. And if you've been redeemed, then you are responsible for knowing what the Scripture says and means. This was all part of that whole Reformation. Pick up the Bible and study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Shut down the video games, that Facebook page, and open a search engine if you don't understand. A search engine such as Bible Hub. And there you will find all the information right at your fingertips. And understanding what the Bible is saying to you. What God is telling you. Shut off the TV. And open up a commentary alongside of your Bible. Unless you are one of those that, that Paul warned young Timothy about. In verse 3, those that for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, those that will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in the myth. You have to think about this. These people, those itching ears people, the ones that won't endure sound preaching, they were all sitting in pews. They all thought that they were saved. And they weren't. I fully expect that what you hear coming from my mouth on Sundays, that you will be writing these things down, especially those things that are challenging for you or challenging to you, and that you will be writing down the Bible addresses that I use as evidence to support those things. And then that you will go and study for yourself to make sure that I am telling you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now, what in the world did Jesus mean when he told these men in verse 12, what, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do? And greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. The answer to that first part of that can be found in the second part of what he said. Because I'm going to the Father. Because I'm going to the Father, you will do the works that I am doing and even greater works. We can understand what he meant by the works by understanding what was accomplished by him going to the Father. Are there some light bulbs going off? out there, flickering just a little bit. And this greater works thing isn't anything new. From the very beginning of the earthly ministry of Jesus, he has made reference to greater works, beginning in first, uh, John 1. Jesus answered, he said, 
Truly, truly, you will see, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the, on the Son of Man. And then back in John 5, when the Pharisees were seeking to kill him because he was breaking the Sabbath and calling God his Father, he tells them, truly, truly, again, the divine imperative, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows himself all that he is doing. And greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. What work or works have been accomplished by the Son going to the Father? It's the work of salvation. The redeeming of a chosen people. It is the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Well, are you in Christ? Then you are a new creation, right? The old has passed away. The new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. This is the work that was accomplished by Jesus going to the Father. But what about that we're going to do the same works and even greater works part of our verse system today? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because all we need to do is just finish verses 18 of 2 Corinthians, uh, of 2 Corinthians 5 to have that given to us. This is what it says. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting, and, in, and entrusting to us, entrusting to us, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. But you're going to sit there and say, that doesn't apply. They can't apply to me because I'm not gifted in speaking. I'm actually kind of antisocial. I really don't even like people. I don't like, especially don't like to confront people. Because, so Jesus can't mean me. But doesn't Jesus begin verse 12 from our verses today with the text today that says, whoever? Isn't that what verse 12 starts with? Um, whoever, yes, whoever believes. Yes, whoever. Well, that can't mean everyone, right? Well, lucky for us, this is not the first time that he uses that whoever word. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst, John 6.35. Who's that talking about? Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, John 7.38. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. Who's that talking about? John 11.25. Whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness, John 12.46. No, dear saints, this is what, the, what is expected to be the normal Christian life. And Paul proves that. After he finished this thought of being given that ministry of reconciliation, the ministry that Jesus gave to all that are redeemed, he finishes it that way or that with this. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, 
be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There it is, the work of Christ, the greater work that he said that you will do because he has gone to the Father. And Paul even gave you the cliff notes on how to be an ambassador for Christ, how to participate in the ministry of reconciliation. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Is that so hard to remember? Is that so challenging to say to people? Is that too much to ask of you, the one that has been reconciled to God? One who for your sake the Father made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him you could become the righteousness of God? Now can you understand why allowing false teachers to spoon-feed us platitudes sermonettes that are full of sweetness, worldliness, and false teaching, why that has robbed, of, robbed us of a huge part of the blessing of being in Christ. Because we no longer think that this is life in Christ. That being an ambassador for Christ, that that is what it is meant to be in Christ. This being a minister of reconciliation, we don't desire this because we've never been really taught to understand, to know that one that is the way to the Father. The one that because he went to the Father, because of him we are able to do greater works in and through him. And because of this, we don't really understand verses 13 through 14 either. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Have you ever stopped to wonder why at the end when we pray, most people say, in Jesus' name? Do you just think those are magic words? Kind of like abracadabra? And as a side note, that word abracadabra, that's Hebrew. And it actually means, this is what abracadabra means. It means it will be created in my words. But no, in Jesus' name is not the magic words that force God to do what you want. And how many of you do not pray because in your heart of hearts you actually think that praying does no good? And you think this way because you prayed for Sister Susie to be healed, and you even threw in that in Jesus' name at the end of that prayer. Or you prayed, in your, and in your prayer, you use, you use Scripture to bolster the power of it, such as, Lord, you said we will be able to handle snakes, and the demons will be subject to us. Well, Lord, I rebuke that demon of sickness, or the demon of poverty or the demon of shortness, or the demon of baldness, in Jesus' name. And then Sister Susie died, and you're still poor, and you're still short, and you're still bald. So you shrug your shoulders, and you think to yourself, there's no power in prayer. And you go about living as a practical atheist, 
relying on yourselves to get things done. We have never been taught how to ask things in the name of the one who has gone to the Father. The one that has promised that you will do greater works. The one who is the way to the Father. So what does it mean to ask in the name of Jesus? You already know that the way that you've done it in the past doesn't work. That's why you don't pray. So what does it mean to pray in his name? This is tied directly into knowing the one that is the way. Because his name is synonymous with who he is. And back in verse 5, when Thomas told Jesus that they didn't know the way, the way that he was going, he responded by telling us the way. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he said, I am there. This is not the same thing as me saying, I am David. What he said there is that he is God, Yahweh. I am that I am. He is the incarnate, the everlasting, the before the beginning, the holy, holy, holy. So when you ask anything in his name, what he is saying is that it has to align with his nature. And anything that you ask in his name, which is his nature, he will do it. Now do you understand why those prayers for that car didn't come to pass? Or even for that healing? And maybe even for salvation? Asking in his name is not the same thing as holding him up, putting a gun to his head and telling him, you promised me this. Asking in his name is submitting to who he is and aligning your heart, your will, to his. It is submitting your emotions, your desires, your will to his. And you should do this because he has gone to the Father, because he has reconciled you to the Father, because he is the way and the truth and the life. But unless you know the one that is the way, you will never be able to pray in his name, which is his nature, his essence, his being. So what is that nature? What is his essence, his being? Well, first and foremost, I've touched on this. We need to understand that he's holy. This is the only attribute of God that is repeated in the Bible. And not just repeated once, but twice. God is immutable, which means that he never changes. We're told that in Hebrews 13, 8. But we are never told that he is immutable, immutable, immutable. God is love, as told to us in 1 John 4, 8. But we are never told that he is love, love, love. And God is omnipotent, which means that he's sovereign, as we're told in Psalm 115, verse 3. But we are never told that he is sovereign, sovereign, sovereign. But we are told in Revelation 4, 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Well, what does holy mean? A.W. Tozer said this about holiness. Holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. Because he is holy, all his attributes are holy. 
that is, whatever we think of as belonging to God must be thought of as holy. God has made holiness the moral condition necessary to his health, to the health of his universe. And R.C. Sproul said, God alone is holy in himself. The word holy is used as a synonym for his deity and calls attention to all that God is. It reminds us that his love is a holy love, that his justice is a holy justice, his mercy is a holy mercy, his knowledge is a holy knowledge, and his spirit is a holy spirit. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and that he is devoted to seeking his own glory and honor. And holiness is challenging for us to describe because it means other than, different than, separate than, transcendent than, above all of his creation. And God is holy because he's eternal. He was never created. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. And this is how we are to pray. This is how we are to ask. And this is how we are to live in his name, in his nature, for his glory. Now can you see why it is of utmost importance that we actually know the one that is the way? We've been so content in the past to kind of know him. To maybe know him in passing. Maybe we could recognize him when we heard about him. But we didn't really know him. And because of this, our prayers have been ineffective. Because of this, our lives have been meaningless and lacking power. And because of this, we haven't been active in our ministry of reconciliation. Saints, I implore you, be reconciled to God through Christ, who is the way to the Father, who is the truth, who is the life. Do not be so confident in your profession of faith of knowing this one, who is the way, if you are not obedient to this one, who is the way. Because he is also the truth. Outside of him are lies. Outside of him is death. Outside of him is eternal torment in hell. And you want to play with it. Be reconciled to this one. Be obedient to this one who is the one that is the reconciliation between you and his Father. And you will know that you've been reconciled to this one when you obey this one and live as an ambassador to God, pronouncing the reconciliation that this one, that is the way to the Father, the one that is the truth and the life, the one that is our only hope if we are ever to be reconciled to the Father. It is then that you will know the one.